Well, 1 John chapter 3, the apostle begins writing here in verse 4. He says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. That is, in Christ, there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you've ever studied American history, you're familiar with the political doctrine called manifest destiny. The phrase was coined in 1845. And it was this belief in our manifest destiny that propelled our country's territorial expansion across the North American continent. In the early half of the 19th century, a rapid birth rate, increasing immigration, caused the U.S. population to explode. And to make room for more Americans, the country pushed its boundaries westward. In 1803, the Louisiana Purchase doubled our size. The annexation of Texas, the Oregon Territory, and eventually California followed. Manifest destiny was this idea that it was our country's destiny, that we were destined by God to spread democracy and capitalism and a better way of life across the continent. This was the driving force behind our westward expansion. This belief provided our government a justification for gaining control of more territory and enlarging our borders until America stretched from sea to shining sea. It's interesting that more than economies, more than wars, more than elections, an idea about the will of God was what helped shape our history. Manifest destiny is what turned 13 East Coast colonies into a transcontinental superpower. And here's the point. God ideas can work miracles. When God's plan is revealed 
and our God-appointed destiny becomes clear. We're motivated to get in sync and to live accordingly. This word manifest, it means to reveal, to showcase, to put on display. And God has displayed His purposes. This morning we want to discuss several truths that the Apostle John believed in that have the potential of altering our lives in real and tangible and in eternal ways. See, God's manifestations still shape our destiny. Well, John begins in verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now realize, sin isn't just a mistake or a memory lapse. Oops, I forgot. Or a slip-up or even a character flaw. Sin is much more. Sin is a disdain for the rules. As John puts it, sin is lawlessness. This is so important for us to understand. You see, the reason that sin is such an affront to God is it's the desire to shake off all restraint. It's rebellion. God created us. God sustains us. And sin is the coup d'etat against God's government. Sin is turning up your nose to God's authority in your life. Musician Elton John once told a German magazine, I am gay and wouldn't want to be heterosexual for all the money in the world. I've got enough money. Don't have to follow any rules. Don't have to be in the office from 9 to 5 and take the kids to school in the morning. It is simply a fantastic life when you don't have any parameters. It's brilliant. Well, apparently Elton's lifestyle is all about himself. Never blessing or giving of himself to others. Just doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Nobody can tell him what to do, apparently. And there are heterosexuals with the same attitude. In fact, I know folks who are perceived as Christian. They're good deed-doing, law-abiding, morally-minded, and commandment-keeping on the outside, but on the inside, they are every bit as rebellious as Elton John. Reminds me of Nita Friedman. She's a 66-year-old lady who was driving down Highway 95 in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, when the police tried to pull her over. Nita refused to stop, and a police chase ensued. The cops chased this little old lady for 15 miles across two counties. She was finally captured when a spike strip was placed in front on the road in front of Nita's car. Three flat tires later, and the ordeal had ended. And here's the kicker. For the entire chase... Nita Friedman never exceeded the speed limit or broke a traffic law. She was the perfect driver. She just didn't want to be told by somebody else what to do. She just didn't want to be inconvenienced or interrupted or put out by someone else. And this is why John calls sin lawlessness. People sin not because it's a better way to live than godliness or even more fun. They sin because they don't want to live under somebody else's laws. They don't want to live under God's law and God's rule. They just don't want to be told by somebody else what to do. Their heart is full of pride. 
And here is the good news from our text this morning. This is what Jesus came in the world to fix. He changes hearts. Read verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Here's why Jesus came into the world. To take away our sins. Actually, over the course of this letter, John mentions five reasons Jesus came into the world. The second is in chapter 3, verse 8, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The third is in chapter 4, verse 9, that we might live through him. The fourth is in chapter 4, verse 10. He was sent to be our propitiation, or literally our place of mercy. And last but not least, chapter 5, verse 20, he came that we may know him who is true. Jesus came to reveal the eternal God and his nature to us. But the first reason is here in verse 5, to take away our sins. Do you remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus on the bank of the Jordan River? He pointed to him and he shouted, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, Jesus came to take away our sin. And remember, our sin is lawlessness. Our sin isn't just a case of runaway hormones or a lack of stamina or the inability to stay awake or to control a certain appetite, etc., etc. Our sin is blatant rebellion. It's the resisting of constraints imposed on me by God. Sin is due to a rebel heart. And if anybody can solve such a problem, it can only be Jesus. Notice what's said of him in verse 5. In him, there is no sin. Such a statement can only be made about Jesus. He alone falls into the sinless category. Understand, with God, sin is transferable. The sin of the guilty can be passed to the innocent. This meant that Jesus can bear our sin since in him there is no sin. Let's say when you walked in this morning, the usher asked you, tell me your worst sin of all time. Oh, you were a little startled. Kind of cleared your throat. Well, I once took money from my boss. And so the usher, he pulled out his magic marker. He pulled out one of those little sticky name tags, you know, and he, he wrote down on that thing, Bill the Embezzler. Slap that little sticky right on your chest, right on your shirt. Then the next person walked through the door. The usher asked her, what was the worst thing you've ever done? The lady says, well, I once had sex with my ex-boyfriend. And so the usher, he hands her her name tag, Ansley the Adulteress. Imagine everybody in the church that morning. Everybody's got a name tag on. Sally the shoplifter. Neely the greedy. Lou the lustful. Gretchen the gossip. Max the manipulator. Leslie the liar. On and on it goes. By the way, what would your name tag read? But that's when Jesus walks into the room. And since Jesus has no name tag... He starts snatching name tags off of everybody that he meets. He yanks the tag off your chest, in my chest, and he puts it on his. And after a while, 
there stands Jesus, the embezzler, the adulterer, the shoplifter, the greedy, the lustful, the gossip, the manipulator, the liar. He's wearing all of our tags. Since he's never been tagged with sin himself, he's able to wear our tags. As Paul said, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for all those sins. He came into the world, as John says, to take away our sins. John writes, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now here's what I'm calling the Christian's manifest destiny. God's truth can shape a person's outcome. Did you hear that? God's truth can shape a person's outcome. If Jesus came to put away my sin, if in Jesus there is no sin, then it stands to reason that whoever abides in Jesus does not sin. This is our manifest destiny. See, what's true in our spirit places us on a trajectory. The truth becomes our driving force. It impacts our destiny. Now, don't let verse 6 confuse you. Understand what this verse does not mean. John isn't teaching here some kind of sinless perfection, that a person can live a sin-free life. As a matter of fact, John said earlier, and and he's not contradicting himself, he said this earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Hey, we all know we blows it, And John knows it. He's aware of this. In the original language, the verb sins in verse 6 is in the present tense. It could be translated continues in sin. He's saying whoever abides in Christ won't continue in sin. The Greek word translated sin is the word harmatia, which means to miss the mark. This was the term used when a marksman, an archer, missed his target. See, man's problem is not that he occasionally misses God's glory. It's not that my eye tends to mist up or that I get distracted or my hand slips off the bow. No, my problem is that my aim is bad. This is all of our problem. Our aim is bad. Our problem is internal. See, our nature has been twisted. It's been stained. We've been bent so that we no longer shoot straight. Shock jock Howard Stern recently said, You're warped. I'm warped. We're all warped. He sounds like a good theologian. That's a really accurate description of human nature. And this is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, we're all born with this warped, lawless nature. Thus, Jesus needs to birth in us a new nature. Only Jesus can do this. He transforms our spirit with his spirit. He turns us into straight shooters. Of course, this new nature doesn't mean that I'll no longer slip up in sin. It can happen. But the problem is no longer internal to my spirit. It's external. It's the flesh. It's the world. It's the devil that now causes me to miss. 
My flesh, that is my mind and my body, I'm getting old now. It can fail me. The world can distract me. The devil can trap me. This all means that the key to Christian living is learning to live out the new nature that Jesus implants inside my heart. To love God. To love other people. And in doing so, overcome the outward enemies that want to sidetrack that love. As believers, there will be times when we'll miss the mark. But it's no longer because we can't aim correctly. As we learn to overcome the flesh, the world, the devil, we'll hit the target more consistently. It's been said, a believer isn't sinless, but he or she does sin less and less and less. Before I came to Christ, I occasionally slipped up and did good. But the flow of my life was towards sin and towards selfishness. Now that I'm in Christ, I might slip up in sin, but my prevailing desire is to please God and to love others. John is saying, if in Jesus there is no sin, then it is the manifest destiny. It is the God-ordained inevitability that the person who abides in Jesus will overcome sin. It may not happen overnight. Just as America didn't conquer the continent in, in a day. But because people believed it, it was God's will for them to do so. So they kept pushing westward and it eventually became a reality. And John is saying the very same thing is true for a Christian. In Christ, we are on a trajectory toward victory. John says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. You see, the big question is, who's your daddy? Because if you got the right daddy, that's going to put you on the right trajectory. For how do we work? What are, what are human beings like? It's, it's like father, like son, is it not? For all of us, really. It's another inevitability, like it or not, in ways you and I will look and act like our dad. His quirks will mimic. There will be a resemblance whether you like it or not. Again, it is our manifest destiny to favor our father. And this is true spiritually. God is righteous, so his offspring will eventually be righteous, whereas Satan is evil and his kids make up a long line of sinners as a result. This Friday I watched Billy Graham's funeral, perhaps you did, and you could see the dead in all four of those children. They're adults now, they're senior citizens in fact, but when they talked, you heard their dead. In their faces, you saw Billy. The older I get, the more like my dad I act. I look. From the jokes I tell. You ever told a joke? Oh, man, I sound just like my dad. To the way I walk, I am my father's son. No mistaking it. And the same is true spiritually. That's why you need to choose your father. A child of God acts godly, and those who are of the devil gravitate toward evil. Hey, we know God is good. He does what's right. He is righteous. This means his kids will more times than not also do the right thing. 
if you're born of God and have his nature. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted. It just means that you'll lean to the right, literally. You'll want to do the right thing by God and by your fellow man. Whereas John says, the devil has sinned from the beginning. If you don't know God, you can go through spells of righteousness, times when your conscience bothers you and you try to do right, but Satan knows he has you. All he has to do is just tighten the choker and you come cowering right back to him. The chain has never been broken. The child of God and the slaves of the devil, they both have track records and over time you can tell who's who. Reminds me of a quote. Recently, I heard someone say, you can't fake good kids. It's true. Well-behaved kids are evidence that their parents at least did something right. And you can't fake your spiritual parentage either. Once me and my three older kids, we were walking around the corner of the house. There was Zach, and there was Nick, and there was Natalie. The kids were just tots. We had turned the corner when all of a sudden I went, just spit out in the grass. I like to spit out in the grass outside. That's what grass is for. Spit out in the grass. Well, as soon as I did, Zach goes, Nick goes, oh my. And my little darling princess goes, And Kathy was on the back porch. And she saw the whole thing. And she couldn't believe I was teaching my little girl to spit. But it's inevitable. Kids mimic their fathers. As the old saying goes, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. Kids act like they're dead. And this is true spiritually. If God is your dad, you'll make a habit of doing what's right. But if you habitually sin and harbor hatred in your heart, then you, my friend, are a child of the devil. Verse 8 tells us, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. Here's another reason Jesus came into the world. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to break up Satan's party. To end the chokehold that he has on humanity. To snap the chains of sin and set us free. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus exposes Satan's motive for all mankind. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. This is Satan's goal for your life. He wants to rip you off, put you down, and wipe you out. But Jesus provides 24-hour-a-day security. Satan's out to kill you, but Jesus is a bodyguard. He'll take a bullet for you. Or even a nail. Satan wants to destroy you. Jesus desires for you a better life. He promises us life and life more abundantly. And Jesus opposes the works of the devil. The words that roll from Satan's lips most often are foiled again. And if Jesus' manifest purpose is to untangle what Satan has twisted, then it is our manifest destiny to live a free and untangled and straightened out life. The Greek word translated destroy is a term used for a shipwreck. Think of a wooden hull 
breaking up into churning surf. The kingdom of Jesus acts like the battering waves that ultimately demolish the works of the devil. It may take some time to accomplish, but in John's mind, victory is the inevitable destiny of every Christian. He says in verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, literally sin continually, because he has been born of God. Understand how God judges believers and non-believers. He uses different criteria. When a believer, with a believer, God looks at his seed in my life. He looks at what's been planted in my heart. If a person has been born of God and has God's seed, his spirit, his nature inside them, it may not be evident yet. That seed may not have fully sprouted, but the seed of righteousness is alive and growing and will eventually bloom. Righteousness is that person's inevitable destiny. But an unbeliever lacks God's seed in their life. Thus, no matter how hard they try, no matter the good they do, it's not enough to blossom into what God desires them to be. For lack of a seed, God judges the deeds. Listen to how J.B. Phillips translates verses 8 and 9. He says, The man whose life is habitually sinful is spiritually a son of the devil. For the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. Now the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of undoing the devil's work. The man who is really God's son does not practice sin. For God's nature is in him for good. And such a heredity is incapable of sin. Realize John's doctrine is focused on spiritual heredity. Good seed produces righteous living. No seed yields a barren life that's left to the devil. The idea that your underlying nature, your spiritual genetics in essence, determines righteousness and unrighteousness, shouldn't be a hard concept for the modern world to grasp. For today, every dysfunction, every aberrant behavior gets blamed on genetics. Serial killers, homosexuals, alcoholics will all tell you that they're born that way. And in a sense, they're right. All humans are born with a proclivity toward a certain sin. Little babies are born lawless. You don't have to teach a little baby to rebel, to get upset when they don't get their way. It comes naturally. We can blame all of our problems on the sin nature we inherited from Adam. But the reason we can't duck responsibility for our problems is that through Jesus, we can be born again. He is the answer. A new nature is available to each of us. And if we don't have it, it's only because we haven't believed in Jesus. Jesus can take out our defiant nature and he can replace it with a compliant nature. One that loves God and that loves people. If you're truly born of God, you'll have his seed growing inside, which sprouts love and righteousness. Jesus puts our lives on a trajectory to victory. Verse 10 tells us, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is he who does not love his brother. It's the believer's manifest destiny to practice what's right and to love his brother. A few years ago, I read of two women in Russia who had to swap two-year-old toddlers. The hospital had sent the two women home with the wrong babies. One mother was reminiscing. She was looking over the memorabilia of her child's birth, and she noticed another mother's name on her boy's maternity ward ID tag. Well, DNA tests confirmed the mistake. And here John is saying that churches can make the same mistake. We can send folks home thinking they're a child of God when they're actually a child of the devil. The only way to know for sure is a spiritual DNA test. See, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. You can be like that little old lady who drove the speed limit while she was running from the cops. On the outside, you may be doing everything right. But if you're not stopping for God in your heart and surrendering to his authority over your life, you are lawless, not righteous, and you belong to the devil. If you're stubborn and you want it your way and refuse to submit to God, then you've got a real problem. A true believer will want to please God and love others. John says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Of all the roads that lead to hatred, jealousy is the shortest. It was jealousy that turned Cain into a murderer. It's been said, a man green with envy is ripe for trouble. And that was certainly true in the case of Cain. The story goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. In fact, do you know what the first man and first woman were doing after they sinned and got kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Do you know what they were doing? They were raising Cain. Yeah, raising Cain. See, Cain was their first son. Their second was Abel. And Abel understood that there was nothing that he could do to atone for his sin. So he obeyed God and he brought a sacrifice. But Cain was a proud man. He brought to God the first fruits of his crops, the work of his hands. Rather than offer what God wanted, Cain offered to God what he wanted. God rejected Cain and he accepted Abel. Of course, this sent Cain into a rage. He was angry, he was frustrated, and he took out his emotions on Abel. God, Cain couldn't humble himself. He could have humbled himself. He could have corrected his attitude. Instead, he attacked Abel and he killed him. Understand, men of God like Abel become easy targets for people mad at God like Cain. See, a man's arms are too short to box with God. So a man will take out his anger and failure and envy on God's representatives. And this is why John tells us not to be surprised by persecution. He says in verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be shocked. John knows that if the world hated Jesus, it'll hate us. I like commentator John Phillips' thoughts on verse 13. He writes, 
because the church followed its founder for its first three centuries, it endured the full fierce force of this world's hate. Nearly all of John's colleagues in the ministry had been persecuted and martyred. John was well aware of the world's hostility toward Christianity. For the first seven years of my daughter's education, Natalie attended a Christian school. But in the eighth grade, we enrolled her in a public school. And I'll never forget our conversation. On the night before her first day, I sat my daughter down and I said, Natalie, I'm going to make you two promises. First, you will be persecuted for being a Christian. I hope it's not often. I trust it's not by a teacher. But at some point, it will happen. Yet I also promise you that when it does happen, Jesus will be there to give you strength. And I think Natalie would tell you I was right on both of those promises. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't marvel as if it's something that you didn't expect. Last week I mentioned in passing the ladies on the TV talk show, The View. I said that at the Lord's coming, when they got a view of the believers in Jesus standing next to him, clothed in all of his glory, they'll understand Christianity in a new light. Of course, I was referencing comments by co-host Joy Behar and Sonny Houston. On February 13th, Houston commented on the Christian faith of Vice President Mike Pence. She said, well, I don't know that I want my vice president speaking in tongues and having Jesus speak to him. Behar chimed in that hearing from Jesus is actually called mental illness. Man, if that's the case, Pastor Sandy is the biggest crackpot on the planet. I pray daily God will speak to me through his word and by his spirit. I imagine you probably pray and ask God to speak to you as well. And he does speak. You know, for years I've prayed for politicians who hear from Jesus. So to see the answer to my prayer publicly ridiculed is astounding to me. The intolerance and scorn in this country toward Christianity and its values is growing at an alarming rate. I'm really wondering what I'm going to say to my granddaughter on her first day in public school. John says, do not marvel. Persecution is also our manifest destiny. Live for Jesus and it's inevitable. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life Because we love the brethren. Here's the evidence of God's life in a person's heart. This is how you check for a spiritual pulse. Do we love the brethren? When you examine a Christian for spiritual life, there are two vital signs. Do they do what's right? And do they love the brethren? Love and obedience are the indicators. Shortly before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at Ebenezer Baptist Church here in Atlanta. He was talking about what he wanted said at his funeral. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. This would have been John's heart as well. Love of the brethren was his claim to fame. Do you love people? Verse 15, 
He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. A professor at the University of Texas recently asked his students if they had ever seriously considered killing someone. And if they did, did they go as far as to have a plan for carrying it out? He was shocked to discover that 91% of the men and 84% of the women said yes. And they had all thought it through. One woman wrote of planning to invite her ex-boyfriend over for dinner and then stab him with a knife. A man wrote of his road rage in the day he pulled a baseball bat out of the trunk of his car with the intention of beating a motorist. Fortunately, the guy ran for his life. And yet, this shouldn't surprise us, for this is exactly what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Certainly actual murder carries more serious consequences than mere anger. Yet the deed is in the seed. Hatred and murder are the same evil, just different degrees. Murder is anger that has run wild. It's uninhibited anger. Hate that has cast off all restraint. Thus, the person who hates has the potential for murder in their heart. This is what John is saying. Of course, there's a lot of talk these days about the plague of shootings that we've seen in American schools. Some folks today are calling for more gun control. Others talk about putting guns in the hands of faculty members. But the Bible tells us that the answer lies in our hearts. I don't want to get into the politics of gun control, but I will say this. I don't trust anyone who only talks of taking guns out who doesn't talk of putting God in. For if you don't see the cavernous need in the heart of our youth for love and meaning, if you don't see our disregard for life and the breakdown of the family, and the absence of fathers, and the abandonment of our moral foundation, and all this has taken its toll. If you don't see that, you're not an honest and serious thinker. You're not wanting to solve problems. You're just trying to move along a political agenda. Ultimately, the question is, how can we change people's hearts? And this is why our text today is so very relevant. For John is clear, the only answer is Jesus. In Jesus, there is no sin. He came into the world to take away our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Thus, when Jesus plants his seed and his spirit in our hearts, it becomes that person's manifest destiny to change, to do what's right, and to love one another. Do you know Jesus? Are you on a trajectory toward victory? You can be. You can come to Jesus today. 